Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins on the local news roundup. Legislative leaders pay a visit to Charlotte and talk about abortion and sports betting, but also make something abundantly clear about this city's transit plan. They really don't like it. A Matthews Town Commission meeting is derailed by racist and homophobic comments from online participants. One commissioner walks out. As we approach the North Carolina primary, we learn election results could be delayed. We cover that and other news you need to know before you vote. A longtime and very effective former member of Charlotte City Council, Lynn Wheeler, dies. And when the Panthers announce a ticket price increase for the coming season after last year's disastrous one, it sets off a rant from ESPN's Mad Dog Chris Russo. You give him a discount off that kind of season, not a price increase. He had a lot more to say, and we will share it with you <laughs> here to talk about those stories and more. Is, I can't wait. Is uh, Steve Harrison, WFAE's uh, political reporter. Nick Oxner's here from WBTV, where he is their chief investigative reporter. Mary C. Curtis is a columnist for RollCall.com and host of their Equal Time podcast. And Eric Spanberg is the managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Welcome back to you all. I think we should all answer in Chris Russo style this yes. morning. Uh, okay. How great. do you really, what do you really think, Mr. That's Russo? Right. That's right. That, that, Good morning, be, Mike. That'll be tired. I'm already tired. Uh, Republican <laughs> legislative leaders, Phil Berger and Tim Moore went on a field trip this week and it took them to Charlotte uh, where if there was any ever doubt, any ever any doubt about how they felt about our transit plan, they quickly dispelled that doubt. House Speaker Tim Moore is running for Congress in a district that includes part of Mecklenburg County. He told business leaders, our city isn't big enough to warrant more rail transit. Most of us have traveled either to other countries or other cities where you have the density support to support mass transit in a, in a very significant way. And I don't know if Charlotte's there yet, but I think it's appropriate certainly to plan for it in a lot of ways. So we've heard something similar to that before. What was the reaction to the folks gathered at the Charlotte Alliance, CLT Alliance, where those remarks were made? Well, some of the remarks were made afterwards to reporters. Steve was there, I was there, and others. Uh, but during the, I guess, group discussion, it was uh, finessed a little more than the previous year. It was the same message, but it was uh, sweetened a bit with, hey, look, we don't want to jump out to any conclusions. We want to see the finished plan. We're not going to say yes or no to anything. Oh, by the way, it better be chock full of roads or we're not yeah. going to move forward. So that was kind of the tenor of the conversation. It was about a year ago that Berger and Moore initially, I believe, dismissed uh, the $13.5 billion transit mobility plan that we've been focusing on for, for years now, saying that it should focus less on rail and bike trails and more on what cars use, roads. And Tim Moore reiterated that this week. The most pressing issue right now is the way 95% of the people get to and from work or wherever, and that is in a car. So the mayor and the city council held a lengthy set of discussions at their annual retreat in January, at which, Steve, the plan appeared to have been rebranded as a roads first plan. Uh, Councilman Ed Driggs, who chairs the city council's transportation committee, was at the CLT Alliance meeting with the mayor 
have they responded to these comments? I have not talked to them about what the Republican leaders said, but I think, Mike, you know, the word you just used a second ago, rebranded, I think is really critical because they've talked a lot about roads first, but it really is a rebranding. There isn't much different. And then, you know, Eric kind of mentioned um, that, that Speaker Moore was more, gave the bad news in a nicer way this year. You know, a year ago when he came to the Business Alliance, he just was absolutely destroyed the plan and like mm -hmm. made fun of bike lanes and this and that. This year, he, he actually kind of made a joke. He started out by saying, oh, I rode my bike here, my mountain bike here from Kings Mountain. Uh, he's kind of trying to, you know, be a little nicer about it. But when you strip away all of the jokes, the message was exactly the same. Yeah. And I think uh, one interesting thing, Senator Berger afterwards, he, he went out of his way to say that the General Assembly would want to know what the makeup of the projects will be before they will give the go ahead for a sales tax referendum. And he, he was just emphatic about that. And I think to Steve's point, that is another way of saying it better have a lot of roads in it or we're not going to be inclined to allow it, Mecklenburg it, County to have a referendum. And it's important that we listen to what Steve and, and Eric just said, because these are all things that you would hope a city would have gone and done their homework on before launching a <laughs> multi-billion dollar transit plan. And the reason the Charlotte plan is originally touted, pitched, was dead on arrival at the General Assembly is because I don't I don't think anyone bothered to call Tim Moore and, and Phil Berger. Well, and that's before formulating the plan. I, evidently, no one's really been in touch since they formulated the plan. We had a, several conversations with the mayor about this, and she kind of deflected, or she said that Tariq Bakari had been dispatched because uh, he's a Republican to talk to the Republicans in Raleigh. But we've known since the very beginning of this plan that we need legislative approval for a one-cent sales tax hike to help fund this. We've known that uh, we need federal money, and the Biden administration is probably the most train-friendly administration since Abraham Lincoln, but the sun could be setting on that very quickly. Uh, so why haven't more, why haven't we been, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, put it uh, why haven't we been working harder at this if we really think it's necessary? You well, can't I see my shrug on the radio, but that's my, <laughs> Eric, go ahead. I, I think one of the things that's gone on is, uh, They've gone in multiple directions. You know, it, it's been very fuzzy as to what exactly is going to happen. They came up with this suggested plan. They came up with a new price. Uh, this all happened 2020, 2021. They gave up on the referendum. Uh, then they started hearing from the state, the skepticism. And then you heard the mayor and others with the city saying, well, we're going to go out and build regional support and consensus so that we can have surrounding counties to be able to go, go up to Raleigh and also lobby for this thing. And so you're surrounding have, Republican you know, counties. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so now you have this mishmash. And then uh, finally, in January, during the city retreat, they heard from other cities how they put it together and said, okay, we're going to go reformulate this thing. And I think that's kind of where it is right now is in this sort of no man's land of, okay, exactly what's going to be taken out, what's going to be put in and how much sort of shifting around do we have to do before it's palatable to Raleigh? So although perhaps Tim Moore soft-pedaled his negativity about this plan a little bit to the Charlotte Business Alliance, Senate leader Phil Berger says a revamped Charlotte plan will be a new starting point. And he, <laughs> we're going to start all over again, in other words. And he acknowledged that, quote, transportation is one of those issues that a growing state has to get right. 
but he too is stuck on roads first. And we've been told for years by urban planners and transportation experts that you cannot keep building roads in a growing city because it will end up with gridlock. As soon as the roads are built, they will be filled. And so we need alternatives like these trains, allegedly these bike lanes and bike paths, etc. So are the planners wrong? Are the politicians wrong? And how much time do we have to get this rolling? And what happens if we choose wrong? Well, I can answer the first question. I mean, the last question first, which is, if you get it wrong, you've made a multi-billion dollar mistake. So obviously that would be a no-no. You might want to avoid that. As to the rest of it, Mike, you know, it, it's really all in the hands of us, voters, uh, local government, because Raleigh doesn't have to move at all. They're not inclined to even think about this until the region and or the city get together and, and figure it out. And based on what we've seen in the last three and a half years, they're not close to consensus. I think that's safe to say. By the way, we've been talking about this for, what, 10, 11 minutes on the radio. We haven't even gotten to North Mecklenburg yet. Remember that little issue? Right. Right. Well, we also haven't said the word Atlanta yet, which is, you know, really what happens if you get it wrong is you get the gridlock of Atlanta. And the irony here is we heard from Berger and Moore this week that, quote, we don't want Charlotte to become Atlanta. And that's because Atlanta built a train that no one uses. And that was mind bogglingly backwards. I don't think Atlanta's Atlanta because it built a train. Also left out of this debate, of course, are the amount of people who really don't have cars, can't afford cars, have to get around, um, have to have a city where it is easy to get from place to place. Uh, and, and we never talk about that piece yeah. of it. You know, how will people get to jobs, get to different parts of the city and the county if they don't have a car? And the politicians who say, well, everybody uses cars, that's actually not true. And if you had a uh, transportation system that worked for everyone. You know, as Nick said, when you look at Atlanta, you know, they didn't build in certain areas, uh, the mass transit, they didn't want people coming to the suburbs. You really can't use that as a great example. Eric, did you want to talk? Or is your yeah, I just want to add one point. What, what's really interesting, what Mary just said, is that uh, in a separate part of the conversation, Phil Berger made a pretty impassioned plea for government-subsidized childcare to help with economic mobility and to help obviously fill jobs for employers. Uh, but what Mary just said is the second half or the complement to that. If you can't get people to those jobs, uh, the child care is not going to help. So uh, maybe a uh, what do they always say? A reframing of the conversation might be in order. Uh, we need to move on. But before we do that, I want to mention that Phil Berger lamented the lack of funding as well as unpopular options for funding transportation. I guess he's talking about taxes. I'm not sure. But he said, quote, we've got to have something that engages both the state and the local governments in a solution. We're not there yet. I don't know that we'll get there. Whoa, that's hopeful. Meanwhile, on Monday night, uh, Charlotte City Council approved $4.8 million to build the next segment of the Cross Charlotte Trail. Timing. Uh, <laughs> is that roads first? Where will this Cross Charlotte hey, Trail paved, be? so yes. <laughs> where, where will this be? Where will this uh -oh. new trail be? Uh -oh. You may have stumped the panel. Okay, I've stumped I can't the panel. That. Okay, that's fine. Across Charlotte. 
somewhere well, no, out I think there. They, they had talked somewhat about it going into the Hidden Valley area, I believe. Okay. Uh, legal betting is going to arrive in just 10 days in North Carolina at noon on March the 11th. And both Tim Moore and Phil Berger wanted to talk about the legislation that enabled this to happen. What did they have to say? They, of course, are in favor of it, as is Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, and you're seeing this across the country. Politicians are uh, in favor of more betting. They like the revenue that it brings in. They say it also helps uh, generate tourism and will help the teams, uh, sports teams, and uh, events that are here. So we will see. They're estimating, Mike, about 53 to $72 million per year over the well, next five I, years. I, I, had a, I had a question about that. Uh, NCSharp.com estimated the first year's tax revenue would be $126 million. And you report that the legislature's fiscal research division last year estimated the state's net gain from sports betting will be $53 million to $72 million mm-hmm. each year through 2028. Net indicates expenses. So give me the difference between those three numbers, 126, 53, and 72. Well, okay, so the 53 to 72 is just scaling up as gambling goes year by year, and they assume more people will play. The 126 by the outside group is they is simply they are less conservative. They think that there will be more gambling and thus higher revenue. So they're all talking about the okay. same thing, just different stages. Uh, and how does online betting on your phone encourage tourism? Uh, well, the whole theory is that more people are paying attention to sports. They want to go to games. They want to come in. I mean, you know, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's Pre- a little bit of fanciful thinking, but that's what they think. Pre-registration for online betting apps begins today. What does that mean? That's where you put in all your information so that they can uh, take your money should you lose a wager uh, once you begin to play. So, in other words, this starts at noon on March the 11th, but you can pre-register. So, at noon on March 11th, you can place your bet without having to go through the rigmarole of registering and giving them your bank account numbers. Okay. Happy days are here again. When we come back a little bit more about about our visit from the two folks in the legislature, and then we'll talk about Matthews Town Commission and what happened there this week. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. It's the local news roundup. That's why Steve Harrison is here from WFAE News. Nick Oxner from WBTV. Mary C. Curtis from RollCall.com. And Eric Spanberg from the Charlotte Business Journal. Nationally, immigration has taken the top spot of voter concerns as we approach the primary season. Actually, we're in the primary season. But abortion also remains high on the list in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. Access to abortion is now up to the states, which has some people worried, particularly in Republican-controlled states like North Carolina. Uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger was asked about that while he was in Charlotte this week. I don't see us making any substantial changes to that, uh, uh, clearly in the short session. And I personally would not be in favor of any wholesale changes uh, long term. But Steve, is he ruling it out? Um, no, definitely did not rule it out. And, and I think this is a, a really interesting question as to uh, 
how definitive that statement is. I mean, this is an election year, Mike. You just said abortion is a really hard issue for Republicans. Um, it's something that they do not want to deal with in 2024. But, uh, you know, Mark Robinson, who's running for governor, has said, you know, he would like to end all abortions. And so let's say there is a situation where there's a Governor Robinson and Phil Berger. You know, who wins in that battle? Uh, Democrats, you know, they have heard Republicans say similar things before, and then we went from 20 to 12 weeks. So I thought it was interesting that that, that Berger seemed to be giving personally not interested in rolling back farther. But yeah, well, What's he may not be. He may not be interested yeah. because he's in leadership. But can he control his caucus? Yeah, I that's think that's question. the. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good question. And Steve, uh, Steve, I think you were standing there when uh, Speaker Moore, he, he took a similar stance and went to great pains to say that they had consulted physicians, they had uh, brought in uh, female experts, so on and so forth. So it, it sounded like, as you just put it, Mike, uh, leadership uh, may not want to do it, but, but uh, what happens with the rest of the, uh, the group? Well, let's be Nick clear. Hold it, 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 hold it. Uh, Nick, you had your hand up, but Mary, Mary was first. I'm going to give it to Mary first. We need to bring some female experts into this. Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> well, as you said, you know, when they overturned Roe v. Wade, you know, the, the whole expression, the dog caught the car. Afterwards, they have been running away from the implications of it. And every time they try not to talk about it, something happens, like the Alabama court rules that uh, frozen embryos are, are people. Uh, and that puts the issue of IVF, which Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, particularly when it comes to families, are in favor of. They get very upset. And of course, Democrats say, you see, this is what happens. And as you say, there are some folks looking for compromise. But on the other hand, you see others in the base saying, this is exactly what we want to happen. Mm -hmm. And as you said, folks like Robinson are saying, uh, yeah, we want to eliminate this. So as much as possible, Democrats are trying to put this issue on ballots, because every time that it has been on ballots about abortion access, even in red states like Kansas, you have seen voters say, hey, we don't want it to go too far. But, you know, you see uh, Donald Trump, who will probably be the nominee, both on the stump taking credit for appointing three judges on the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade, but also saying he's in favor of compromise, uh, IVF access. So it's a really difficult issue for Republicans. So Nick, you want to chime in now? Just to point out that, you know, I think it's fair to say that Tim Moore and Phil Berger both recognize what Mary just said, that this is not a popular a winning issue for Republicans. It was a issue that motivated the base when they said, look what we could do. And now they've done it. And now it's unpopular. So they recognize that. At the same time, Phil Berger can control his base, his his caucus and Berger's notorious for having airtight control of his caucus. Tim Moore does not have that same reputation. Who knows what can happen in the House? And in fact, we look at a, a, a major priority of Phil Berger's last year was derailed in the House. And so I think that's why we're hearing a slightly more cautious wording from Berger. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that you will certainly have a very conservative faction in the House that will try to bring this issue up further. 
Especially years, with a lame duck speaker. Go ahead, Mike. I'm yeah, sorry. For years now, our politics has become increasingly rancorous, particularly at the national level. And now it is filtering down to the local level. We've seen disturbances at Charlotte City Council meetings in the uh, protests over uh, uh, what's going on in the war in Gaza in Israel. And this week, the Matthews Town Commission meeting was derailed when they opened it up to public comments on Zoom. Steve, what happened? Um. Yeah, there was a kind of a flurry of speakers, perhaps real people, or some people think maybe perhaps AI generated that kind of uh, unloaded a venomous rant about uh, LGBTQ community, uh, Jewish people. Um, at one point, you know, there were people who walked out. I think people, Matthews commissioners were kind of confused as to what to do, uh, whether they could stop this or shut it down. And there, I think it's an issue they're still wrestling with right now moving forward. So there was this series of anti-Semitic and homophobic uh, rants by participants. What provoked the comments? Were they talking about that or some aspect of that during this meeting? Or did, did this just come out of the blue sky? I believe it was unrelated to the items on the agenda. Okay. Uh, one town commissioner, right. Mark Tefano, objected when one of those speakers' volume was turned down, and that elicited this exchange between Tofano and fellow commissioner Renee Garner. No, I refuse to step down on this. This man, although we may not agree with him and we find it, maybe some of us find it repulsive, you have no right to turn down the volume on this man. I no do, right. Mr. Tofano, I do not need to hear from anybody about putting their mouth on, the, on a child's genitals. Whether I agree with him or not, the language that he used was offensive on every level. So Renee Garner walked out, and the meeting took about a five-minute recess, later resuming with their agenda. But now, the mayor of Matthews says the board is considering changes to how public discussions are conducted. Do we know what they're thinking about? They're going to have a meeting to talk about that, Mike, I think. But when you look at other local boards, and I'll shout out a board that I've often criticized on this program. The Charlotte Mecklenburg School Board has a very tight but very uniform and rigid policy. And I, I think it's for things like this uh, to prevent stuff like this and to give the board more control when when instances like this come to light. So would it be accurate to say that Commissioner Mark Tefano's objection to this Zoomer's microphone being turned down because he considers this a free speech issue, that citizens can speak to the town commission freely about whatever in any manner they choose to do so? Is that what he's saying, essentially? Yeah, and, and it is a free speech issue. Uh, we should also point out, Mike, that the city or the town the next day said that no one's mic was turned off until they'd hit the five-minute time limit. Would and increasingly, that we're seeing these going on around the country. Yes. These Zoom bombing things are going on, and people are saying sometimes they're humans, sometimes they're deep fakes and AI that you can just generate tons of them. And it's a real case, as we see all over, of law racing to and policy racing to catch yeah. up to technology. Queen City News reported that the audio from Monday's meeting in Matthews sounded similar to comments made in a city council meeting in Beaverton, Oregon, where officials believe AI was the culprit. Could this be the case? I mean, could these have been artificially generated voices and comments? Mm -hmm. Wow. In Matthews, in Matthews, Queen City News reports that AI detector, that's a some kind of a web thing, uh, indicates that there's a 97% chance that the voice was AI. 
but a 78% chance that it was human. <laughs> I'm not good it, at math, but that doesn't uh, really That doesn't add, add up. up. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, a Beaverton City, a Beaverton, Oregon's city attorney advised his counsel that due to free speech and the fact that laws haven't kept face, a pace with technology, they have to allow this kind of speech to continue because of the Constitution. I mean, could that be correct? You cannot silence inappropriate remarks at a public meeting? You can't do that? I think that, I think one thing that, that's interesting, you know, the idea of public comment by Zoom is something that happened post-COVID. Okay, now, I mean, I'll ask I'll ask you guys. Your Charlotte City Council. I have not heard public comment by Zoom in a Since long, COVID. long yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and that, Steve, well, that these, was the first these, thing I thought these, of. Hold on. Had these remarks been made in person behind a microphone in the room, would they have been allowed to continue? Oh, I yeah. think that. I think they okay. would. Do, do you think so, Nick? Because a lot of times at council. I'm trying to remember if they make people stop. They certainly talk over people when it gets offensive at times. Steve, do you remember, is there a formal policy of like, that's we will good, shut you a, down? I don't that's know. That's a great question. And I just mentioned the Zoom thing because, I mean, I yeah. think clearly it, it's much harder to go and stand in person in a room and say hateful things as opposed to, you know, behind a computer. So, well, I mean. And that's the other thing is even if it wasn't AI, maybe it was, it could also be people using fake names and right. speaking, quote, you know, kind of anonymously, their cameras weren't on. Yeah, you can hide um, behind your alias. <clears throat> this is certainly a First Amendment issue. You certainly have the right to talk about almost anything you want as long as it's not obscene. Um, it's kind of, you know, what what I think the existing Supreme Court precedent on the First Amendment would would say. And that does include speech that makes people uncomfortable. And the problem is, Mike, we don't want the government coming in to be the arbiter of what is and isn't offensive because, you know, then you you get a situation where the government's cracking down on speech they just don't like. Eric. <laughs> there are balloons in my screen. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, I, I think to Steve's point, though, one, at least one measure you would take pretty quickly if it's not already in place is to make people speak in person, because I think that does at least take a lot of that away. Not all of it, but it does make it much less likely for a parade of those kinds of comments to be made, I think. So early you know voting is that person, you know. Early voting has been going on now for a while, and the, the primary is Tuesday here in North Carolina, Super Tuesday, as a matter of fact. Uh, the, the turnout has not been great, Steve. Uh, what, what have, how many people have voted so far in Mecklenburg? Yeah, so I'm actually reading this from a Charlotte Observer story right now. As of uh, yesterday, a little under 30,000 people had gone to the polls. I think uh, through the entire early voting period in 2020, there were about 68,000. Um, so we will be far below that. I mean, so there's is, still is a that couple being more driven days by left. the lack of enthusiasm in the presidential race or something else that worked there? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is this is a Mecklenburg is a very Democratic county. There is right. no, you know, there's no contest for president. And that really keeps people sitting at home. We also learned this week that election results in North Carolina may be delayed beyond what they normally are uh, this year. And I know that in Mecklenburg County, it's always been frustrating to get re election results uh, at, at when the polls close or sometimes hours afterward. Why are they going to be further delayed? New laws that require um, early voting totals to not be tabulated until the polls close. So that means 
they can't start doing any counting until 7.30 on Tuesday why, night. Why not? Because why the not? General Assembly decided they didn't want that. Yes, but why? Again, you can't see me shrug on the, on the radio. <laughs> okay. I do think, um, I'll say one more thing, just jump in. It will make election night, I mean, not only we'll have to wait a little longer for the results, but the whole kind of tone of it's going to change because in a place like North Carolina, we have had kind of the, the pattern is kind of a blue mirage, right? We post early votes at 730, Democrats outperform in early voting, they build a little lead, and then Republicans kind of claw back through the night as same day votes come in. So it's just going to, the whole. I think the whole feel of election night is going to be very different. And to answer I will, your question, I, Mike, a lot of these voting laws are were unnecessary. It's just to throw a little monkey, you know, a little it, yeah. something. Well, and, and promulgated in the wake of the 2020 claims of voter fraud. Of I think that's a serious fraud, answer yes. here is, 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 you know, we saw aim at why do the vote totals change after early yeah. voting? And, in the name yeah. of election integrity, but not yeah. real. Correct. Okay, so Mark Harris, speaking of voter integrity, uh, had his victory in the in the ninth congressional district thrown out in 2018 because of mail ballot fraud in Bladen County, and partly because at an investigatory uh, investigatory hearing, he himself called for a new election and then chose not to run in that election. But he's running in this one in the 8th District, and he recently made statements that sounded like he's changed his mind about that previous election. Nick, you've covered this extensively. What has he said? Yeah, well, he, uh, you know, his whole campaign launch video and other statements he's made since he's launched his current campaign says that uh, the election was stolen from him in 2018 like they stole the election from Donald Trump. Yeah, he's using the same language of a weaponized political persecution. So you can see that he's morphed into a Trumpian defense of I didn't do anything wrong and well, they did it to me. Well, at one point during a hearing held in 2019, after that election, Harris's lawyers stopped him from testifying, worried that he might perjure himself. And Harris recently called that old news. The people of this district know what happened and they have their views excuse me, sir, of what happened. And I, I leave that in the hands of the voters. So since this scandal took place years ago in another area of the state, in another district, do voters really remember it? Do they even know about it? Has it been an issue in this campaign? I actually think it has been an issue in this campaign. We've certainly seen ads made about it. I mean, you just heard him answering a question about it. Mike, I do have to correct you just a smidge. He stopped testifying because he had perjured himself. And he called for a new election as a way to purge or get rid of, discharge the, the false statement that he made on, on the stand. Okay. Uh, uh, which, which, is why, which is really why he called for the new election, because he made a untrue statement under oath. Finally, Mike, if you will indulge me, the paperback version of the vote collectors is set to come out <laughs> next week. I'm not making that up. Well, Harris is hoping people have a short memory, and a lot of time voters do. And you can see their ads against him. Because I'm sure other Republicans feel he would be a weak candidate, though that district is very Republican. Um, but uh, the, he's hoping the name recognition will help him win and people will forget the bad part. Uh, Trisha Cotham is going to be on the ballot uh, on Election Day. She's the uh, Democratic member of the North Carolina House who defected to the Republicans shortly after being elected two years ago, and which gave the GOP a veto-proof supermajority. Democrats were and continue to be up in arms about that, and that may prove to be a challenge for another Cotham, her mother, Pat Cotham, 
on the county commission here in Mecklenburg. Steve, is she worried that Democratic anger might spill over into her election? Pat Cotham says no, um, and she's been in her elections and re-elections to county commission has just been dominant. I mean, two years ago, she won by 10,000 votes, but it will be interesting to see in this race. Most people kind of who watch this race closely on the county commission think that Pat Cotham, think that Pat Cotham will still win, but it'll be interesting to kind of see how many votes she, she loses, you know, what the Trisha Cotham effect is and, and what that looks like. I think it's going to be fascinating. It's the first time a Cotham has been on the ballot since, since the switch. And they're both on the ballot since the switch uh, this time. When we come back, you talked to uh, Pat Cotham for a story you filed, I think, yesterday, Steve. And we'll hear some of the things that she had to say about uh, the reaction to her daughter and how it's impacted her race and more. And then we'll also talk about uh, Lynn Wheeler, the late Lynn Wheeler, who was a member of city council for a very long time. It's Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins, the local news roundup, starring Eric Spanberg, managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal, Mary C. Curtis, columnist for RollCall.com and host of their Equal Time podcast, Nick Oxner, chief investigative reporter from WBTV, and Steve Harrison, WFAE's politics reporter. Steve, you spoke with uh, Pat Cotham last week prior to a candidate forum at which she expressed surprised at the pushback she is receiving as a result of her daughter's decision to switch parties a couple of years ago. I expected pushback, but I expected that people would have, want to have conversations as opposed to um, vulgarities and violent actions that were taken. And I didn't expect my grandchildren to be contacted. I, I didn't expect that. To what is she referring there, Steve? Um, this is something that Trisha Cotham talked about when she switched to the Republican Party in April, and she gave that press conference where she was explaining her decision and, and saying that, you know, even leading up to her party switch, she'd been getting a lot of criticism for some of her votes or misvotes. And she talked about at the time, didn't give details, but said that her two children had been kind of, I'm not sure if it was threatened, but people had kind of like, contacted them in stores, et cetera, you know, that they had yeah. been brought into this. And so that's what Pat Cotham was talking about um, in this in this instance. You also asked Pat Cotham if she had expected to get an earful from constituents about her daughter's defection. She said yes. But I really haven't. I really haven't heard about it. When I've been out, people are just, well, we know you, Pat. You know, we see you in the community. You know, you stuck up for us. But I have had things like my signs taken and things like that, you know, so. But you also asked her about an issue that is a hot button for a lot of voters, and that is abortion. And in North Carolina, it was her daughter's party switch that allowed the General Assembly to ban most abortions after 12 weeks. Well, um, it's what they did. And I have to say, I have learned as an elected official People often don't like votes that we have, but they don't have all the information. I would have liked a a few more weeks, but I did like the other things that were added to it, were help for the mother. And I mean, those things 
I did like, I'm a practical, I'm a realist. You don't always get what you want. Is she putting a spin on the legislature's vote that her voters will buy? I think it's definitely some spin in that, you know, this, and she's right, legislation is complicated. There's a lot of things we don't know. But in this case, it wasn't that complicated. It was a okay. vote, you know, it was a vote to do it or not to do it. That was that was basic. It's pretty simple. Okay, Charlotte City Council is considering shifting some of the money earmarked for Spectrum Center renovations. Part of the $275 million budgeted for the Hornets has been shifted to Spectrum Center, which the city owns. What's going on here? Well, the biggest thing that's going on is that with the new ownership of the Hornets, they want to build the practice center faster than was originally planned because if you remember it was going to be part of a redeveloped charlotte transportation center across the street from the arena that has run into all kinds of problems that uh, steve harrison can document and has documented very thoroughly uh so uh the uh, infamous pivot that that has arrived is that the hornets owners want to build on a city-owned gravel lot behind the arena it's about a three acre site that was always the backup plan uh the city just hoped they wouldn't have to go to it but now they are going yeah. to it the other important point here mike is that it was going to be a 60 million dollar practice center now it's likely to be 100 to 130 million dollars but the difference being paid by the team yeah so that we were going to put their practice facility on the top of this mid-rise mixed-use building which is where we built which would be built where the uh transit st uh, station is and they want to build it on that gravel lot that we spent weeks months talking about batting back and forth here's how uh, 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 city, city the uh, city's economic development director tracy dotson positioned it for council they had a bigger vision for a bigger world-class facility they wanted to actually invest more and they desired to control the development so that they could get an earlier delivery so what has been city council's reaction to this City Council, I think, is is mostly in favor of this, though there is some sort of uh, continuing, lingering, uh, grudge, grudging acceptance of the fact that they're having to invest so much in the arena. And uh, Tark Bakari uh, pointedly cited past councils referring to the original deal that was struck when the arena was approved uh, back in 2002, 2003. But my guess is uh, once they go through an economic development committee meeting next week, they're going to vote for this and approve it uh, by the end of the month. And, and there was concern on, on several of their parts about uh, not having the, the transit center lost in all of this. It's 30 years old, my God. 1860 <laughs> it was built. Uh, and Dimple Ashmira echoed that. We have to figure out a way to ensure that we have, um, we have a plan for our transit station renovation. So what is likely to be the next step here? On the transportation center, on any of real, it. on any of it. Okay, so uh, on the first part, on the Hornets part, uh, I think council will approve this by the end of March, and they will go off. They being the Hornets will go off and build their uh, practice center, and it will open in 2026. They'll continue and do their arena improvements. The bigger question, Mike, is the transportation center. In that clip you just played from Councilwoman Ashmira, really nothing has been said about it in months. That tells us that it's at a standstill. Uh, there are private developers involved. I think we all know what the real estate market is doing in and around Uptown right now. So uh, my 
hunch is that this is on the back burner for an extended period. Uh, it's, it's, the money will go now. Some of the money will go to renovating the Spectrum Center. And this is not the first time that the Spectrum Center has been renovated since it was built. And it's sometimes hard to believe that we're talking about this because it seems like it was just built. Uh, and if you think about discussions on how all this fits in, I mean, it's, it's reminiscent of something that happened years ago. The Hornets were playing at a relatively new building uh, near Billy Graham Parkway, and they wanted a new building because they wanted skyboxes. And at the time, the owner, George Shin, was not very popular, so voters went to a referendum and resoundingly said no. But you'll notice that the Spectrum Center is smack dab in the middle of town, despite that vote, and that's largely due to former Charlotte City Council member Lynn Wheeler, who died this week at the age of 80, a week after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She ultimately lost her seat on council because of those efforts to go against that vote and build the arena anyway. And here's how Republican former Mecklenburg County Commissioner Matthew Ridenauer remembers that effort. She's a firm believer in, in the uh, economic uh, impact of having an arena in Uptown and having something in Uptown that would draw people there. And then from there, we'd have other businesses and restaurants and bars and all that sort of development around an arena. And, uh, you know, the, the former arena was, was out on Tyvola. And, you know, it was a great arena, right? You know, live at the Hive and everyone remembers going to games there. But it was really, a, you know, a destination. You go there, you went home. And so, so her vision was having an arena uptown where there were other things to do afterwards or before the games and really kind of make it a vibrant uptown community. Matthew Rodenauer speaking to WBTV. Uh, clearly she was right, Mary, uh, because look what's happened since uh, that building was built. Wheeler was an old school Republican who believed in fiscal responsibility and economic development, and she worked tirelessly on council. She was certainly right about the arena, but this decision made a lot of people mad. Can we say that though she would that she was a visionary on this? Can we say that? You can you can say that. I mean she was a pro-development Republican. People don't remember now if you look at it that we really had a very mixed Republican and Democratic council, mayoral uh Mayor Pat McCrory for years, and they did work together. She had friendships across the aisle, uh, and she did a lot by the force of her personality. She was a very big personality. You couldn't help but be drawn to her in so many ways. It, she really was a throwback, and in that sense, she really was pro-Charlotte more than anything yeah. else. Well, she wasn't a throwback then. She was living through the uh, the way things were done back then, Eric. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. And I mean, look at Uptown now. Uh, and I used to go to some of those old games when I first came here to the Hive. And it was, you got out of a game and everybody was up and pumped and they wanted to do something. And all you did was get in your car and wait in a line to get out of the Hive. Uh, and so she was on to something. Eric. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know Steve, maybe others, uh, Mary and Nick, uh, may have seen some of this as well. I'm not sure on timing, but uh, I know Steve and I certainly remember Lynn Wheeler, consummate politician. I mean, she, I think she spent probably three quarters of her day on the phone with reporters. And so when you got a tip from Lynn, it was a race to get the story done because I knew she was going to call Steve or any other number <laughs> of reporters immediately. So uh, she really was somebody who just loved the game of politics and was, was constantly exchanging tips and news items. And uh, she was a unique figure, no doubt about it. 
Steve. And I think uh, I think it's interesting. You know, we, we talked about how she lost her reelection bid in 2003 because of the arena decision. But Pat McCrory was equally in favor of that, equally behind the arena. He's just somehow he was unscathed. He won again in three 2003, five and seven. Um, for whatever reason, the arena, you know, Len owned the arena. Pat McCrory didn't just, just and she was thought. a style icon too. We can't forget that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, everyone knew what she looked like, what she was wearing. Oh, yeah. uh, she, you know, Lynn Wheeler was Wheeler of the dealer, right? Absolutely. And her campaign billboards were were glamour shots to be to be. <laughs> you could put them up against anything in vogue. Quite quite <laughs> Why honestly, not? and she was able to make friends, a uh, lots of friends, on both sides of the aisle. And one of those friends was Charlotte City Council member Democrat uh, Lawana Mayfield, who told WBTV Republican Lynn Wheeler was a gift whose friendship with her crossed party lines. Let's clearly identify. I am a strong Democrat. Lynn was a strong Republican. That was my love. For more than a decade, Lynn Willard, Miss Madeline Lynn Willard was a part of my life and we laughed. We talked local politics, we talked state politics, we talked about nothing at all. A, a lesson to be learned from that and something we should try to return to because what we're going through now is destructive to our democracy and things worked well back then. Uh, another of our sports teams also planning uh, for expansion. The Panthers want a major addition to and redevelopment of their South Cedar Street practice complex. They filed a rezoning petition. What's in the plans? Uh, they are looking to build a big football field house, which uh, would have, I assume, uh, indoor fields and training areas. And uh, many of the components that might have gone into, say, a project in Rock Hill. But I think mm. that Rock Hill project <laughs> was abandoned. Uh, so now uh, this is a, a smaller version of what they have been trying to do ever since David Tepper bought the team, which is to have one-stop shopping for training camp, practice, team nutrition, all those things. Uh, that's what this will help them solve. So speaking of, uh, well, we, we didn't, I'm going to skip a story, so we're not speaking of grades, but uh, uh, the NFL has given out grades. The NFL Players Association has given out grades, and they've given an uninspiring one to the Carolina Panthers' ownership. They ranked them 17th out of 32 teams with owner David Tepper receiving a D. He ranked 28th out of 32. Why? The big reason is when David Tepper decided to switch from a natural grass field, which had always been at Bank of America Stadium, to artificial turf. And the players uh, do not like artificial turf. They've been pretty vocal about that. And that is the overwhelming reason that he got a low grade. Yeah, a lot of this is based on that decision. Uh, evidently, 100% uh, of the players prefer to play on grass which led to him receiving a 6.6 .6 out of 10 score from his players. But did the Players Association give the team any good marks? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking about some of the uh, training camp and practice and day-to-day -day things. They got good grades. The, the Panthers got good grades on strength coach, uh, training facilities, how the families are treated, nutrition, the hiring of a new chef. Those are all things where the Panthers have lagged uh, you know, in not too distant history. So there's a little progress there. Maybe they build a field house and uh, who knows before you know it, Mike, you're going to have three win team, four win team. 
Let's get crazy. <laughs> so this so this isn't the only place that the plant the Panthers got blistered. David Tepper specifically, he's the second wealthiest owner in the league, but last year the team had a 2 and 15 record. They fired their coach uh, Frank Reich 11 games into his tenure and now they have announced drum roll a ticket price increase. How much, Eric? Yes, sir. Average of 4%. It varies between lower level, upper level, but this is the second year in a row. And as you say, Mike, a lot of fans not happy coming off a 2-15 and 15 season. That they'll be paying and that the set time. ESPN's Chris Russo off. He noted for his, he's noted for his rants uh, on his Mad Dog broadcast. So let's unleash him. How about Carolina and Tepper charging 4% ticket increase? Oh, for next year for the Panthers. Wow. I mean, you got son. Because they won some games? You got to be serious. You're not, you're not serious, are you? With this God-forbidden franchise that stinks, where you're firing head coaches, when you're telling everybody who to draft on draft day, including Young instead of C.J. Stroud. And I love Young, too, but that was a mistake. In a market that cares more about college basketball than the NFL, in a stadium that's a little old, and you're going to make them ante up 4% more. I don't, care, but I don't care what the percentage is. You should give them the games for free. I edited that for time, but you know what? We still have some time, so let's hear more. When you guys make a fortune, when the NFL prints money, and you're going to charge those poor Panther fans 4% more? 4%. That is a complete, utter disgrace. And for an owner who has absolutely no good PR, okay, that's the last thing you do to your fan base off a lousy year when you're throwing water in Jacksonville at the fans because you're upset that you lost the Jaguars. You know what? I got an idea to fix our problem. Let's charge them more money to see the garbage that we put on the field. That is a, I don't know who came up with that idea. You give them a discount off that kind of season, not a price increase. ESPN's mad dog, Chris Russo. I'm going to start watching now. This is fun. Uh, he should he should try to be more effusive, don't you think? You want to? I'm going to do Charlotte talks like that from now on, Mike. How's about that? I could I couldn't keep it up. Uh, Mary C. Curtis got the last word. Columnist, host for RollCall.com and Equal Time. Eric Spanberg from the Business Journal. Nick Oxner from WBTV and Steve Harrison from WFAE News. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah Delia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.